Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. Hi, I'm Kathy Barrett and welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show about how we navigate down the not-so-yellow brick road of life. And life is something we shouldn't do alone. So I hope you'll stay tuned with me for the next hour as I reveal what's behind the curtain this week. Before I begin today's show, I want to pause and honor the life of Harry Schwartz. My father-in-law was just a day shy of his 93rd birthday. He passed away last night, just after midnight. He leaves behind a son and two daughters and four grandchildren. Harry was a retired businessman and a soldier who served his country proudly during World War II. Harry was married to recently deceased Myra Schwartz for 65 years. What brings a little sense of happiness during this time of grief is the thought that they are reunited once again. Many thanks to the team of doctors, nurses, and aides that took care of Harry over the last several weeks at St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury, Connecticut. Their compassionate, caring team provided great comfort to Harry and the family. Mm-hmm. Harry, may you rest in peace. Yes. The story you're about to hear has not been told for 60 years. It's about the triumph of the human spirit and how two sisters escaped death, hiding their Jewish identity while hiding in the spotlight performing for the Nazis during World War II. Greg Dawson is a columnist for the Orlando Sentinel, and as a journalist, he's covered everything from sports to editorials, lifestyle to state commentary and consumer affairs. He is also the author of a phenomenal book, Hiding in the Spotlight, which is the focus of our show today. It is the life story of our second guest, the wonderful, wonderful Jana Ashanskia Dawson. For information about the book, go to www.hidinginthespotlight.com. There is also a Facebook page. Jana Arshanskia was born in Berdjongst, a small coastal village off the Sea of Azov in the Ukraine. A musical prodigy who at age six was playing live concerts on the radio. Her life was almost extinguished when Hitler invaded the Ukraine in 1941. As she and her family were being marched to their deaths on the way to the ravines of Drabitsky Yar, her father bribed a guard to look the other way while Jana escaped into the woods. She later discovered her younger sister, um, uh, free, enough. Uh, free, enough. free enough, thank you, also escaped. They reunite, take the identity of Anna and Marina Morozova, and their extraordinary musical talents help them hide in the spotlight while performing with a troupe of entertainers that toured Germany, performing for the Ost workers. After surviving World War II and escaping the Holocaust, they are placed in a refugee camp and adopted by the American camp administrator, Larry Dawson. He sponsors their move to the United States, they attend the Juilliard School, and Jana goes on to teach at Indiana University and Frina at the University of Buffalo. The music you're about to hear is from a concert Shauna gave at Indiana University in 1975. This is Debussy, Pour la Piano Toccata.
Well, I must make a correction there that uh, I actually played you uh, prelude, uh, not Takata, and we'll be hearing Takata a little later on in the program. Um, first of all, I want to welcome Shauna and Greg. It is an honor to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your wonderful introduction of us, of both of us. Oh. Kathy, well, thank you for having us on the on the show, and and especially under the under the circumstances, your personal circumstances. Again, uh, our condolences on on your loss and yes. and and your and your husband's loss, and and um, it's uh, it's very good of you to have us on today under these circumstances, and um, so we um, it's 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 a real honor. Well, thank you very much, and listen after. Reading your life story, Jana, I mean, there was no way that I could not go on after, you know, really understanding what you've went through in your life and the strength and the courage that you displayed kind of inspired me to do the program today. So I have to thank you for that. I also want to mention just listening to that piece, which, you know, that's a small portion of uh, the performance, just a remarkable performance. It's uh, your playing is mesmerizing and and for Greg to grow up listening to your mom tinkering on the ivories like that, what a treat! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I I did grow up with it, and uh, and it was kind of the the it was the background music to my to my childhood growing up in Indiana. And every night I would go to uh, go to bed, and and almost every night she would be practicing in the living room, and I would hear. All this music as I was going to sleep. Now, as a, as a kid, I didn't I didn't think anything about it. It was just it was uh, sort of the soundtrack of my childhood, and I heard it, I absorbed it, um, and uh, I was not uh, there was not I was not a great music lover uh, per se as a kid. I took some lessons as a kid, piano and flute. I was uh, immediately apparent I didn't have any special talent. And so uh, it was. Uh, they didn't waste a whole lot of money on my music lessons, but <laughs> but I did hear. But I did hear. This good thing about having real musicians as parents. They know when you don't have any talent. And, uh, <laughs> but but anyway, I did learn. I did grow up with this music. But it wasn't until many years later when uh, I heard this my mother's story, uh, and then did the book, and I started thinking more about it. Uh, that that I understood the the importance of the music to me. We can talk about that later, but. But um, but yes, I tend to have a great appreciation. That's just not just for the music, but but for the way it affected me, and that probably helped uh, form me as a writer as well. Interesting. And um, Jana, why did you keep the story secret for so long? Oh, oh, because it's such a terrible, horrifying, uh, inhuman thing to happen to any human being, and it uh, would hurt the children so much. They were normal, uh, sensitive, lovely children. And uh, as Gregory is saying, that how he was listening to the music, it was given to him without his request. (laughs) (laughs) I am sure that when he uh, first thought of writing uh, a book, it was always somewhere in his uh, unconscious mind uh, accompanying him while he was writing, it has. I think it had a huge impact on his artistry in literature and writing. I can see that because I must tell you, I've had uh, this. Greg mailed me the CD of your performance, and since I have played it, I walk around with your music in my head. 
It's it's really the truth. It's really, I mean, you're just, I mean, so masterful. It's I can see how you were able to hide in the spotlight because how can anyone concentrate on anything other than your performance? Well, and you know, the Germans are not the most unmusical people in the world, and that's what my father thought would support their humanity. And my father was... Um, a very normal man, except very, very gullible. He thought that his heart was the copy of everybody else's heart, and he thought that the Germans, uh, loving music and being a musical nation, uh, could never be doing the things that uh, they were so uh, well known how cruel they were. He didn't believe in it, and, and I believe my father. Sure. So both of us were gullible to the point where it was, well, you know, the rest of it, what we did. You know, well, let's, yeah, let's just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry, Greg. Go I just ahead. want to say brief, briefly, I want to say there's an important point embedded in what, in what my mother just said. And not to, not to talk about it too long here, but it's true that her father probably was a gullible. It, in part, it was because of his great reverence for the German musical culture. Uh, he couldn't believe uh, that those same people would be uh, who love music so much could be capable of the kind of atrocities that were being rumored. And, and but uh, but you know he wasn't the only one. Uh, nobody in the West really uh, for a long long time could even conceive of what the uh, of what the Nazis were doing. And it was there were many many stories of people coming to the United States and telling uh, dignitaries and telling people in the government about what was going on. And and a lot of people refused to believe it. They said no, it's not possible. So. It's true that he had perhaps greater gullibility because of his reverence for the German musical culture, but he was many people everywhere uh, in there and also in, in the West and throughout Europe had a hard time ever accepting what was really going on for a long time. Very important point to make. And and also it's like that, uh, that the worst part of humanity, I mean it's the perfect yeah. example of the worst part of humanity, yeah. that is capable of, I mean anyone, can have that, right? So it's it it was such a wake up call to the world that this is this can happen, and that's why we cannot ever ever forget it. Um, just yeah. to not to stay on this long, but I myself um, visited Dachau two years ago oh. when I was in Germany, mm-hmm. and it was a profound experience for me. And I really believe that every single person on this planet should go and visit the camp, which is now a museum. And it's really, really important for people to stand there and and read the stories and and what happened to people and pause and reflect and mourn that there is such a horrible aspect of humanity, such a dark side. And, you know, together, if we can be aware of it, then we can prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, Well, I've... Go ahead, mm-hmm. uh, I want to mention to you how much time I spent thinking about this interview and how I feel, how I can uh, project to you of what I think about about this as far as what are we going to do. Will we do anything that can possibly stop it? Because I know that the Germans are not through with us because they're not through with Ukraine they're in marvelous land of soil, soil that the Germans have wanted forever. And so I fear that they are getting ready for another 
invasion. Well, these are very troubled times, and there is a lot of different problems all over. So let's go back, because I really want people to hear your story, Jana. Let's go back to the beginning. Greg, do you want to set the scene for the listeners? We're back in the 1930s, Ukraine, Lenin's in power. Let's talk about Berjunkst and, you know, what it was like in the Ukraine well, during that my, time. My, my mother, this is, uh, she's born in 1927. Uh, in Berdyansk, which is on, the, you mentioned in your introduction, the Sea of Azov. Now, the Sea of Azov is a is a smaller sea just north of the Black Sea. Most people know where the Black Sea is. And it's just sort of north and east and almost connected to the Black Sea. And that's where her hometown was. And uh, born in 1927. And uh, at the time, um, at the time, the, uh, the, the uh, Lenin was, Lenin was in power, but then he soon was, he soon left, and Stalin came in. And actually, uh, actually, for a short time, for a short time, uh, during the late twenties, mid late twenties, uh, Lenin's economic policies were actually working pretty well in in, in the Soviet Union. And um, uh, my mother's uh, father, my grandfather, was a candy maker. Uh, his first love was music, but he was a candy maker, made caramels in in the uh, kitchen of their home, and would sell them at the bazaar. And um, they had a little bit, by by Soviet Ukrainian standards, a little bit of um, a little bit of money. He was able to buy them. His daughters. Uh, he bought a piano from from a, a Beckstein from Germany, <laughs> ironically enough. Mm. And anyway, their lives were okay by Soviet standards. Well, then Stalin came in, and um, and things got very much worse for everyone in Ukraine. He uh, collectivized the farming. There was a uh, the Ukraine rejected that, refused to go along, and he. And he punished the Ukraine by confiscating grain and uh, essentially enforcing or creating a, a horrible famine in uh, in Ukraine that killed uh, at least five or six million ten. people in Ukraine. Uh, well, some are estimates are as high as ten. So the reason I mention this is an important reason for mentioning this, and that is that uh, there was a lot of bitterness towards Stalin in Ukraine. Well, let's fast forward now to 1940-41. Um, and uh, Hitler, of course, has already taken over France and Belgium and some of Western Europe. Uh, but his real target, his most important target all along had been Ukraine uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, he wanted, everyone wanted the Ukraine because of its rich farmland. And he wanted to essentially take the Ukraine, depopulize it of all the Jews, exterminate the Jews, most of the Slavs, and, and, and make it a kind of new Germany to colonize it. He was going to have German colonies there. He also wanted to eliminate the Soviet Union as an immediate uh, military threat. He figured that he would be able to finish off and take the Soviet Union in a month or two. <laughs> Ludicrous in retrospect. But he, so there's, he went there first in 1941 with those twin objectives to exterminate the Jews, clear it out for a new Germany uh, to colonize, and to neutralize the Soviet Union, and then go after England. Then he was going to go after England, and then ultimately he was going to come to the United States because he had, he, he had global aspirations. So that's the night in June of 1941 uh, is when uh, the Nazis invaded the Ukraine, the Soviet Union, with uh, 3,000 tanks, 3 million men, and, um, and uh, in June of 41, and then by October they had made it, Eastern Ukraine, where my mother lived, and by that time in the city of Haikov, which is uh, a larger city in far eastern Ukraine, near, not so far from Russia, a big city the size of Kiev, major industrial area. And um, so they arrived in her ha hometown uh, uh, in, 19, 
in October 41 and started rounding up the Jews. And that's the point at which uh, their lives changed profoundly. And by December, they were on, uh, with 16,000 other Jews, they were on a death march to the place that you mentioned in the introduction, this killing field called Drabitsky Yar outside Haika. Now, before the Soviets, uh, before the Nazis had gotten there, there's been rumors of the atrocities that were being committed in western Ukraine. And many Jews, most Jews in Haikov, did flee. They went east to the, so, to the Urals or to Siberia. But uh, about 10% of the Jews did stay, including uh, my mother's family. And um, they were, that's about 16,000, and they were all marched out of town on a death march on December, uh, in middle of December 1941. So that's the background, the historical background against, uh, uh, this takes place uh, against this, uh, which her story takes place. Tractors company, tractors uh, uh, manufacturing uh, far away from, uh, well, 20 miles from Kharkov, from the center. They, they, they set them up for two weeks in a temporary ghetto in an old tractor factory, and they didn't give them any food and water for two weeks. Many of them died from exposure, and uh, but those who were still living after two weeks um, at that point, they were marched off to the, the final death march, and that's the march from which my mother and her sister miraculously escaped. That's, I mean, it's it's really really unbelievable to think that it's it would be you know <laughs> difficult enough to imagine the the atrocities you know that that you witnessed uh, with the Nazis and Hitler's invasion. But even prior to that, you had to deal with Stalin. And the, I mean, so it wasn't, it was like a one-two punch, and uh, which is really, really difficult um, for anybody to imagine um, surviving those kinds of uh, conditions. Kathy, one quickly, one uh, point about Stalin. I said it was important to tell about Stalin for this reason, that when the Germans, uh, when they invaded in, in June 1941, many Ukrainians, not certainly not all, but many Ukrainians, especially in Western Ukraine, greeted the Nazis as liberators. Yep. They they, uh, they 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 felt that, that the Nazis they saw the uh, Nazis as liberating them from the tyranny of Stalin, and and so so they were greeted with bread uh, and salt and 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 um, and uh, many Ukrainians joined the Nazis because they felt that they That's could uh, that they could that the Nazis would help defeat Stalin, and then after the Germans left, the Ukrainians would have their own independent country. And so they, there, there were a lot of Ukrainian collaborators with the Nazis for those two reasons. First, you know, because they despised Stalin so much, and second, because they thought it would help g- gain them independence, their own independent country. So that's, that's why the history of Stalin is so important. And, and, and w- it also helps explain why there were a lot of, of Ukrainian collaborators with the Nazis. Yeah. And Jana, you know, before you had to move to uh, uh, Kharkov, um, you grew up in this beautiful seaside resort town. Yes. You're, by the way, by the way, it was not a village at all. It was a town. It was a town. It was a town and well-known town, and people from the entire Russia, and you know the size of it. Everybody dreamed to come there, uh, to to see, to swim there, to have terrific food. The food there is unbelievable. Everything smells tremendous, you know. I've never seen fruit better in my life. And I loved it. I just lived for that town. <laughs> I ran around that by myself. <laughs> I understand. It sounds like a 
a wonderful childhood, and your your dad, even with pandemic, he put music in the house every day, and uh, you that's where you got your love for music. And um, very similar to your story, right? I mean, it's, you followed in your mother's footsteps there. Well, that's true. Nobody could have had more freedom and more love than I had when I was a tiny girl and I was all over town. And people always invited me into their crowd. And I used to go to church. And I would go to church and sit down practically just in panties, you know. <laughs> and then your dad kind of, you know, to keep you, because you, you had a little bit of a wanderer. Uh, personality actually uh, started giving you lessons, piano lessons, or got you piano mm-hmm. lessons very early, just to kind of keep you know, keep his eye on you, so he can keep you in the house instead of wandering all over town. Yeah, just to put me somewhere. They did put me into the kindergarten, and that was ridiculous. What happened there? The teachers paid no attention at me at all. I was just sort of like another teacher, <laughs> and my nose never dripped. Those little children, they obviously, they just weren't the child like myself. They were smaller, and they were always with the cold, and they ate the kasha, you know, kasha uh, that I couldn't stand. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I, they were so glad when I finally stopped coming. <laughs> so the, even the move, though, once, you know, your dad couldn't, you know, the the economic situation with Stalin became very, very bad and he had to leave uh, to, you know, to find work. He still, you know, you were still excited about it because basically his dream was to have both you and Frina attend the conservatory. Oh, yes. And you see my mother's sister, they loved each other so much, uh, and Eve and her two girls, two children, were in Kharkov. And uh, a tooth of mine was growing on top of the other tooth. So, of course, we wanted to to have the best doctor uh, that would look at it. We went there to Kharkov for that reason. And uh, the relatives heard us play and said, well, maybe you should go and try to get into the School of Music. That's what we did the next time when we came. We came to visit and went and played in conservatory, and they organized a new group for children they never had and took us in, and a professor that never taught children went to the administration and said he wants to take these two girls and teach us, and he was a wonderful musician. So that's how it worked out. And then um, you were also getting you were getting lessons like a, a few times a week, and then... Um... Well, yes, even three when it started. Right. First, my our father took us uh, three times a week. Then he reduced it to the professor. Uh, his name was Professor Loons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was reduced to two times a week. And then finally, well, that was already close to wartime. We were going only one time a week. And we were participating in concerts and then played uh, just, uh, she and I would play a concert <clears throat> in conservatory. So we had a very busy life, and we were going to school as well. Also, it's worth noting that uh, it's interesting. I thought it was, it was very interesting what I discovered that she mentioned that she studied. Uh, they studied individually uh, with Professor Luntz, but they but they studied together. They studied ensemble playing 
with uh, the sister of Vladimir Horowitz, Regina Horowitz, right? Who was who was well known. Uh, Mom says she was actually a better pianist at the time than he was. Uh, wow! And then he became he became Vladimir Horowitz, the famous the famous uh, 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 the famous figure. But but that in that in the Ukraine at the time, uh, Regina was as well known and and was for many years uh, after the war. I had a prestigious piano competition, and um, so it was interesting. Of course, at the time. The fact that her brother was Vladimir didn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything to them, you know. He was just some guy in New York who kept sending them like chocolates, <laughs> sending his sister chocolates, you know. Well, and so they crazy. were excited about that. Yeah, you know. It's terribly exciting to musicians to realize and read and know that Horowitz would not. He did not have a teacher. He just heard his sister play, mm. and so he wanted to play. And he sat down and looked at the shelves that. Uh, covered all the walls. Those shelves held um, all the uh, music for the orchestra uh, to play uh, opera. Uh, that is, the orchestra was presenting operas, and there was there were scores, but they were orchestra scores. And this little boy, all on his own, learned the scores mm. without a teacher. Wow. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Very impressive. So, I mean, well, I'm sorry. I certainly is impressive. Yes. I mean, unique, unique. Very unique. And, yes. uh, I, you know, life is sounding pretty good right now. You, you and Frina are basically becoming celebrities and, and very, very known in the area. And then the Germans start bombing. So, uh, what, what was that like, Shana? How did your life change then? You know, a child is lucky to be a child. Mm. Uh, I was busy going to the uh, station, the train station, because that's how everybody was evacuating. And I was hoping that I myself wanted to see the conditions in which people uh, go somewhere. And once I came there, it was really easy for me to admit immediately that my mother could never stand it because she had asthma. Mm. And her heart was also not good, and uh, we were afraid that she will not be able to stand the trip because it's a long trip. You know, the distance between Moscow and Vladivostok takes seven days on a train to get there from Moscow to Vladivostok, just across Russia. Mm. So um, I decided that that's my mother cannot be allowed to even try it because she would die. And that's how my father and I, uh, we agreed Fina was just a little bit too young to, uh, she hasn't seen the, she didn't walk around town the way I did. I went everywhere everywhere to to know what's going on. So curious. And um, that's how when we were given tickets to get on a train, my father and I decided that my mother would die. She, we would have to leave her. We would have to lose her. So you can imagine how we decided to stay, the whole family, and not leave her, of course. But if we had taken her, she would have died. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. There were a lot of things. like I can understand it. Plus, you know, um, really, Dimitri, and, and there were many who felt this is, this is so horrible, it can't be true. Or, you know, perhaps we can stay in the home and hide and, 
you know, will be rescued in time. You know, I know a lot of, uh, I read several yes. times where the thoughts went in that direction and all of, all of this is plausible. But the rations for bread went to like two ounces. They were for Jews and, uh, and then the Nazis start rolling into town and Sarah at one point is held by knife point, um, as they're looking for gold. They steal Dimitri's precious violin and in that moment, was that the instigating event where you just knew as a young child, this is it, we're in trouble? Yeah. Are you talking now about the invasion? Yes. Germans? Yes. Well, it was so horrible. It was so obvious. It was too obvious and too cruel. The children were screaming with with uh, agony. That if, how can you take away a violin out of the house when we spend our life with it, and every day, every night, we had music with a wonderful friend photographer. My father and he met every night after they finished their work. That was so symbolic. Kathy, you are absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, it was the end of our life. Uh, they wanted the piano too, but they couldn't lift it. They would have taken anything. I want you to know that the Germans were robbing Russia and mm. Russians robbing the, all the museums. They would go anywhere to take away every bit. It's as though they were starving to death. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was so shameful. It's, it's, uh, I, there are no words really to, to no, express, um, right. that kind of, uh, behavior. I, I, I don't know. There are no words to really express it. Inhuman. It it is in, inhuman, and so the march. What are you thinking then? The, about the march. Yeah, you're oh. on. You know, you're standing with your grandparents and your and your parents and Frina. No, we were not standing. We were walking already. Uh huh. We were walking there, and um, there were two women who were onlookers. Just. Uh, people were walking somewhere with their business. They didn't know. Nobody announced this march except to the Jews that were in it. Uh, but it happened uh, when my father took out the watch out of his pocket and showed it to the Ukrainian because he could speak Ukrainian and he uh, had that watch and he said to him, look, see, I have a watch for you. If you just turn away your head, if my daughter jumps, and I just uh, want to tell you, I'm not a Jew. Don't you see? I'm not a Jew. He he looked about like me. Nobody ever thinks I'm Jewish. And so he said, you see, I'm not a Jew. And my children are not Jewish. It's just my wife is Jewish. My mother looked uh, a Jewish, lovely-looking, beautiful woman. And um, at, at that moment... I saw, I turned my head and I saw on the road those women standing, watching us, and a, a huge, round, uh, um, uh, very prickly uh, wire. Barbed wire. Yes. Mm -hmm. I always forget that barb. Barbed wire, wire there, and of course, it was such a large circle that it allowed me empty space in the middle. And I looked at it. Right away, I knew that's my chance because I thought I can't imagine to any other moment to coincide 
with my father's speech to the Ukrainian and and him looking as though he agreed, and I just jumped. And uh, when I found myself in the circle, I thought, well, now the women were staring at me in fear. They were horrified. And I just bent down and I started to pretend as though I'm doing something, as though I'm looking for something. Next thing, I turned my head back to see what the German with the whip is doing. He was walking right upon us, and there was nothing to do about that. And I never knew when he was going to whip me with it. And on the left-hand side, that, that was the Ukrainian that let me out. It all makes no sense. You see, when I spent so many years thinking about it at night and in the day, mm. I was thinking, well, now Greg is writing that book. Who is going to, who is going to believe it? And then I thought, but I don't believe it. How could I do that? Why, I mean, why did I think that I could do such a thing? And I still think so. And I thought, well, what else we can do but just to say the way we, uh, I saw it? And that's it. And then, of course, Serena, I didn't know where she was for a while. And I still, she never told me in her life how she ran away. Mm. And, Kathy, let me uh, underline one more terribly important thing. Day, and that happened in '42, January '42. There have never been uh, found another person who saved their lives in that march. Only mm-hmm. Fina and I, and everyone knows it in Kharkov. That's extraordinary. Yeah, this is this is true, Kathy. When I went back to uh, Ukraine a year ago to do some research for a follow-up book. I met with a um, an old soldier who was uh, who headed up the committee to establish to build a memorial at the site of this ravine where these uh, sixteen thousand Jews were murdered, mm-hmm. and so he he knows he has intimate knowledge of this, and I, and I met with him and I asked him to an, a, an interpreter translate. I said, "Do you know uh, of anybody else uh, in that march who survived uh, out of sixteen thousand?" He said, "No." So, so my mother and and Frina were the only two uh, known survivors of that death march of sixteen thousand people. And as you know, in your book, uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was presumed that women had escaped that death march. So when they built the memorial uh, about a dozen years ago, uh, my mother's name and and Frina's were 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 included among the names that were inscribed on the memorial. So that when I visited the memorial, I had this very odd, eerie sensation of seeing my mother's name listed among the dead. That's that must have been some experience for you, Greg. You know, walking in your mother's footsteps. You know, just reliving her whole story like that. How did that change your life? Did it have an impact on? Well, well, she didn't know. Kathy was asking me how I felt about that. I mean, it was very odd. It was almost like, uh, I mean, really, when you see your mother's name listed among the dead, it's almost. It's almost like looking at your own epitaph, you know? Yeah. And um, I was standing there looking at it, thinking, this, according to this, I should not be standing here. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and so it was, it was kind of a surreal uh, experience. And um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's very difficult after so many years. It's so surreal to, to almost to connect it with me and with her. Um, uh, and, uh, but um, I've done my best. I thought the best thing I could do is, is what I've done is to, is to, tell the story and then to do this follow-up, which is 
a closer look at what happened, uh, the broader history of Ukraine during the Holocaust, which is something I've discovered nobody, virtually nobody in this country knows anything about. Exactly. That's kind of a different, that's kind of a different subject. But, yeah. um, uh, so. Uh, you know, Katie, I worry very much about uh, the people still acting very much. They, they don't know about Ukraine. They don't know whether it's a country or not. And they, uh, they ask a million questions and then they forget right away. Somehow, uh, it's just that such a terrible thing as the Germans created um, has to make Ukraine famous when it is a wonderful land. It has great musical talent there, tremendous. And uh, uh, not to mention the soil, because that's what the Germans really would do. They think they have the music, and uh, but Ukraine has the land, you see? Yes. And so as they decide that they are the only ones who deserve it. And they, uh, Hitler wrote this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just said that uh, before we occupy and turn it into a colony, uh, we have to kill over 30 million Slavs, Ukrainians and Russians, and everyone who lives there are Slavs. And, of course, the Jews are first. First, and they, they will be, and I, you know, completely... Uh, uh, so it's it just I don't know how we can do anything because while they were doing it, it was known people weren't in Europe, in America, and afterwards when it became known very well, there isn't much fuss about it or much conversation. It's it's sort of quiet and peaceful to them. No, I know it. It, it's, it really is frightening because especially with, you know, technology is great, yeah. but with the children of today and the video games and the violence that they see all over the place, I mean, there there really is a problem with that in terms of being desensitized, you know, yeah. to violence and, and some of these things. But we must hope for the best, and um, each of us, you know, has an opportunity to choose uh, who we're going to be in this life and how we're going to behave. And I think the more you tell your story and the more people hear it, I think it's an awakening. And so it's. I really um, applaud you both. It must have been very, very difficult to go back and, and rehash uh, a lot of these memories. And for you, Greg, to have that responsibility on your shoulders, um, you know, to do your mom's story justice, I really applaud you both for doing such an amazing job. After reading the book, I want to go and walk in your footsteps. You know, that's that's how interested and, and fascinated I am and um, and can feel, you know, really in my own way um, what your journey must have been like. And so it's great that you, you both are coming on the air. And um, as I mentioned to you, uh, I hope you'll come back again. I just think I, I could have had you on for four hours and we wouldn't scratch the surface here about the story. But let's tell the folks a little bit more. Let's keep moving on. Um, Greg, you want to take it from here and, and kind of summarize a little bit uh, how the girls just go on this extraordinary journey uh, on yeah, their own? Yeah. Yes, well, from the time they, uh, you took us up to the point where they, they both escaped the death march. And at that point, my mother's 14 and Freena's 12. And for the next five years, they, uh, they were in Europe. Um, they were, they changed, uh, they changed their identities to non-Jewish identities, uh, to, as you said in the beginning, to Marina and Anna Morozova. They had to get, uh, they had to get new, had to get ID papers. And, uh, they ended up, 
uh, being drafted into a uh, being drafted into a into orchestra of of other Slavs, other uh, Ukrainians who were entertainers of different sorts, musicians, jugglers, dancers, and um, they were drafted into this group who were who were uh, whose job was to entertain the Germans, German soldiers, and also, in the case of my mother and Frina, were often uh, were often summoned to the private quarters of of German field officers and Gestapo to to dine with them and then to play. Uh, after dinner to play concerts for them for and and so this is what they did for the for the next four years and it, it, they moved from Ukraine when the Germans retreated from Ukraine in 1943 they took my mother and, and her sister and some of the others with them to Berlin and uh, so they were actually in Berlin at the height of the war uh, from 1943 for the next go oh, 1944 they're actually under Allied bombing uh, they were in Berlin they were housed in a place, uh, the musicians were housed in a place not far from the Fuhrer bunker, from the nerve center of the Gestapo and the propaganda ministry, and they were allowed to walk around in Berlin because everybody assumed, you know, they weren't going to go anywhere. And uh, they were sent out during that time while they were performing for the Germans and officers. They were also sent out on trains throughout Germany and Czechoslovakia under Allied bombing to entertain uh, slave workers, at Ost workers, slave worker camps around Germany. So uh, that's how they spent the next few years. And every time, of course, they went on stage in front of German soldiers or in the, the or, or dining with German, with Nazis, they were always afraid their true identities would somehow become revealed. And if they were, they would have been sent to Auschwitz with everybody else, with all the other Jews. And um, so that's uh, they managed to conceal their identities. And then at the end of the war. Right, uh, they, right before the Red Army got to Berlin, the, the word was you did not want to be in Berlin when the Red Army got there, uh, and that uh, they evacuated with, uh, with a lot of Germans to, to southern Germany, to Bavaria, and uh, near Munich, where they were eventually ended up in a displaced persons camp near Munich, um, and they spent, they spent quite a while there, uh, I guess almost about a year or so, and were discovered uh, playing the piano there. Uh, by an American named Larry Dawson, who was the man who became my uncle. And Larry Dawson was the head of this camp. He was a music lover from Charlottesville, Virginia, crazy music lover. And he, he decided that he was going to bring these two Russian girls to, to, uh, to America, even though at that point there was, zero, uh, there was zero quota for Soviets. And he had to essentially sneak them over here. Uh, and they were on the first, very first boat of Holocaust survivors to come to this country in May 1946, about 1,900, uh, rather 900 uh, survivors, uh, most of them Polish, uh, you know, French, Dutch. Uh, every there were only two Russians, and they were the only two Russians uh, on this first boat that reached uh, New York in May 1946. And then, as you said, they uh, from there, you know, the rest of the story. They went to Juilliard, and they both went on to have fine careers. So that's very, very capsule summary of their of their journey. And um, uh, there's an awful lot that happened in between, which is uh, it's all in the book. <laughs> it's uh, it's but, all in the book, and the, uh, and definitely go to www.hidinginthespotlight.com. This is a must read, seriously a must read. And I will, I just want to go back and and now do a broad stroke with some things, Shauna, because. You were really called out a few times. There were two ballerinas that worked with, you know, that you were traveling with that kept going to the, uh, you know, German commanders and telling the Nazi commanders, 
and telling them that you weren't Jewish and they were snitching on you. And they brought in another woman who actually worked uh, for the theater group, uh, whose son, I think, I believe both you and Frina went to school with, but she backed up your story of being non-Jewish. Did you know this woman at all? We knew them very well because the, her child, the boy that she had with her when they joined where we were, Frina and I were uh, already, that is, we were working for a theater. Uh, and the only theater that existed in that fairly small uh, town, about the size of Poltava, uh, not like Kharkov. Kharkov is as big as Kiev and as beautiful as Kiev, and it was the um, the most important city in Ukraine, just like the capital. It used to be the capital of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And later, Kiev became the capital. Uh, it's gorgeous. You would just think that you're at home. I mean, it's all as well as it looks as marvelous as many cities in this country. Uh, but, uh, Katie, I just have a very important thing to say personally to you. When you mentioned that uh, you would like to have an interview sometimes when you think that you would be disturbing us, but I would like you to know it's uh, coming from my heart. There is nothing more important I do on this earth than doing what goes on right now with us. It is it is so few people are involved, and, and so many times we try to tell people and they really are not interested to hear. It even includes some very happy Jews who live here, mm-hmm. and they really don't want to hear about Holocaust. I went for the first time in my life. I went to synagogue. I never seen a synagogue in my life in Russia or a rabbi. That was the first time here. And then I stopped going after a year because I heard such shallow talk, so completely uh, um, apart from anything like a tragic thing of the Holocaust, they simply said one woman whom I didn't know yet, she just came in for the first time, and she said, well, actually, uh, it's the same as uh, you get in the morning, you get dressed, and you have to go to work, so jump into the car, and you never know what's going to happen to the car, whether it's going to be. Um, something happening to you, um, crash of some kind. So it's the same as Holocaust. She has never in her life was anywhere a million miles close to it. And she did that. And believe me or not, the rabbi that I liked so much and still do, but not anymore the same way, he, he went with her line of thinking. And well, he could not go back. You know, it's it's interesting, and I think what we may share in common, Shana, is that in the book I read where you say your religion was your music, you know, and I think that's, I'm in the same place, you know. I'm happy this way. <laughs> it won't betray me. <laughs> right, right. You know, what you're passionate about, you're passionate about sometimes being separated uh, with religion and, and culture just yeah. 
just does that. It keeps us separate from each other. And uh, so I, you, you just keep doing what you're doing. I see you with photographs with children and working with the children. And sometimes, you know, you can't, you can't get a, a an old dog to do new tricks. But by reaching out to the children of the world and educating them and letting them hear your story, that will make a difference. Yeah, that that gives them a start. Yes. Something. If they don't have something to. You know, something big to see the world is a big thing. They will never Kathy, know. Kathy, one thing I want to say is you're, you're so correct about that because we found, and I've I've done since the book came out uh, over 150 events of different kinds, and 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 I I can tell you that the most important audience is the ones that really connect with the story uh, at, the, at the at the most emotional level are the kids. We, we we went to a place in Tennessee uh, to a uh, called Six Million Paperclips that they it was a uh, put together it's a, in a small town in, really in the sticks in, in Tennessee, near Chattanooga, and an inspired teacher there got the idea of putting uh, uh, together a collection of six million paperclips to demonstrate to these kids to try to show them how many six million is the number of Jews that died because. Mm. Of the, with an incomprehensible number. So he said, well, how can I show these kids what that number means? So he got this idea to have them collect six million paper clips. And so they put a call out around the world, and they've had since then many more than six million paper clips contributed by, by known and unknown, famous and unfamous people. And they have a, a boxcar from Auschwitz, uh, which is actually there in this old museum they have. And when we went there to speak, uh, we, we had lunch afterwards in the lunchroom, the lunchroom. And the kids, after a while, after being shot, totally surrounded John, and were just were just wanted to be near her and and talk to her, and they really connected with the story. This was after the convocation, and these kids will always remember that. And none of the, none of those, I'm confident, none of those kids will ever be part of anything like what we what happened. In, exactly. In, uh, in, yeah. And you have to get them hurt, and uh, yeah. uh, because they kids will, it's indelible for these kids. You know, you get them in high school, it's almost too late. I, I, exactly. So yeah. I think you're doing the right thing. I really do. I just want to go back and I want to play this piece of music, which is so instrumental yeah. to the story. And and to say that Larry Dawson, what a great and amazing idea. He produced a concert where you and Frina went and played for the survivors of Dachau and, um, oh, my goodness. and all the death camps. And what a moment. I mean, oh. it had to be the concert of, of life. Do you want to share a little bit about your emotions during that concert? Yes, I will tell you the very first thing, and maybe this will be enough, because before going out in the public to play a concert, you always are nervous. Always. Yeah. And this time I felt that something is different about this, and I thought, wait a second. What right do I have to feel nervous at all? It doesn't matter how I play. It's the only time in my entire life when I played the performance and did not, whether I make mistakes or not. The mayor, the, the, the most wonderful event is that I am there and they are there. Exactly. And that's the celebration. And I just said, no nervousness. Just play. It was tremendous. That's know. great. And the audience, there were 1,200 Jews in the audience that survived the death camps. What a beautiful moment. So I'm going to take this opportunity. And, and one thing we left out um, at the beginning of which I really wanted to mention was 
Uh, you ran back to the house at one point, um, I guess, when they were first evacuating the city for a piece of uh, piano music. Yeah. And I'm going to play uh, yeah. that piece for everyone right now because it really, really is uh, the heart of the story to me. And so the piece is Chopin and these, um, it's Fantasy Impromptu C-sharp right. minor. Right.
I had to leave the applause in there. I just that just brings me to tears every time I listen to it. It's I feel your journey in that in in your playing. Um, we may go a couple of minutes over if that's okay with you. I really want to make sure we wrap up. Can you guys hang with me for a few minutes? If sure. you go over, the, okay, sure. fantastic. Hey, mom, did you hear any missed notes in there? Listening to it again, mom. <laughs> <laughs> going too fast to notice <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I mean such power I mean you really do tell your stories it, you, your story is told through your your fingers in your in your playing it's it's just really amazing so thank you so much Greg for sending this music it was such an important part of the show and so let's Shana, what what did you take away from this experience? What do you want us to understand the most as a society? Um, I would like uh, everyone to gain a little responsibility for not allowing people uh, to die for ugly ideas, for for no ideas, for no reason. I would like people to grow up and realize what life is for it's to live and and when somebody pulls you down and cuts it down for no illness for nothing but just learning to you know that's all i would like people to start thinking about the best thing is life individual responsibility that's key yes and how about you greg your reflections well I would say that uh, I always agree with my mother, so that sounds good to me. <laughs> and, but, but beyond that, I would say that seriously, one thing is that also to hear, listen to that music again, and I never really get tired of hearing it uh, either, is that um, it, listen to this piece of music. Uh, it is it, a reminder of all the incredible uh, works of art that were that were never that were never that were never made that were never known because mm-hmm. of. of 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 the six million that died, now uh, because the think of of everything that was wasted, the the human the human potential and the that was that was lost um, uh, because of that horrendous act, and and um, of course even those who are not artists, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but I mean, listen to this music as a reminder of the especially of of the of one of the things that was lost uh, in the Holocaust was. Was it was art and beauty, and and uh, and I really believe that when I did the story and thought about it a lot and talked to, to mom a lot about it, is that I really think that her music, um, being able to play her music during those years, really uh, gave her it kind of protected her and mm-hmm. and sustained her emotionally and spiritually. You know, we see pictures of emaciated uh, people in Auschwitz, physically emaciated, but I think you become emotionally emaciated too. And I think that being able to play that music continue to play it through the war, help sustain her and protect her from becoming, you know, emotionally emaciated so that she arrived in this country, she and Farina, is still buoyant and still full of life and able to produce this beauty. And, um, and uh, again, uh, you, you think of all the beauty that was lost because of the Holocaust. So that's my additional thought to what she said. And I, I agree, couldn't agree with you both more. And the other thing that I got from reading your, your journey, of Shana, and, and from reading your book, Greg, is that I really got that your parents instilled in you a sense of belief in yourself, that you could do anything. 
you know, from him placing you uh, at the piano on his lap when you were three years old and telling you to look at the music and play as if, you know. And so I really feel that that was a driving force for you because what you endured and the challenges that you faced and who you became in the face of it, it had to come from this strength that was given to you, this, you know, this courage, this bravado that you had as a, as a young child. And it came from their love and it came from, you know, their, um, their guiding you. So the confidence. Yes. And I mean, you had that spirit on your own, but it's the combination of all these elements. It's the little things that we tend not to pay attention to. And they're all gifts and they're all part of, you know, how we take that journey and and what happens to us along the way. So what's next for you both? Uh, I uh, really cannot think of anything more worthwhile than for me to simply tell the story, uh, the way we just went through it. I want people who, thank goodness, never were attacked the same way, deprived, insulted, and it lasts a lifetime. Um, My parents are with me all the time. Uh, I have endless gratitude uh, to my parents. Somehow, they were just being themselves. Mm -hmm. Everything that was happening to us, uh, it was the bringing up that uh, if other people don't have it, you cannot even talk to other people about uh, any experience, it's not, use, it's not worth it because they are not listening, although they may have the eyes that they are looking at you, but they are not listening and not absorbing, not able to do that. You have to, that's why I couldn't possibly tell my six, seven-year-old child about this horrendous uh, Iran, I, don't, I didn't think that he has done anything to deserve that kind of story. You know what I mean? But when he I, I was do. Thirty, that was different. I do, but we, I, we neglected to say also that you married uh, Larry Dawson's younger brother. Yes. <laughs> also a musician. And what a musician! Outstanding, uh, very special. I mean, th- uh, did you ever hear of Metropolis? Dimitri Metropolis? Yes. Well, Dimitri Metropolis came to our wedding. <laughs> wow. And Dad played played for Dimitri Metropolis. My father was a viola player, and he played uh, for Metropolis in the, in the Minneapolis uh, Symphony Orchestra. He also played under Toscanini and NBC uh, Orchestra. Uh, Kathy, if I may, two things I wanted to mention uh, coming sure. out. One is that uh, this book has been published in uh, three other countries, France, Italy, and Korea. And uh, an Italian, an Italian uh, filmmaker read the book in Italian, and decided to make a documentary about it. And there is a, a, the documentary is in the final uh, stages of uh, being completed, and it's going to come out first in this country. Uh, you'll probably hear about it first in the New York area there, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, so sometime in the next six months or so, hopefully. There will be a document about Mother's Story and, uh, and, and the book coming out uh, for general re- release, hopefully somewhere uh, in the next six uh, months or so. Um, in March, I have a, con- a follow-up book coming out called uh, Judgment Before Nuremberg, 
the Holocaust in Ukraine and the first Nazi war crimes trial. And it's really uh, kind of a book I didn't expect to write, but as I, uh, as I spoke about this book to people uh, here and elsewhere in the country, I realized how little uh, virtually everybody kn- knows about uh, what happened in the, Holo- in the Ukraine and, uh, and uh, during the Holocaust. And so that's what that book is about. And uh, that comes out in March. And you mentioned Amy, or rather my mother's strength. And, you know, we, um, Amy, uh, our daughter Amy, who's now 30, uh, got a lot from my mother, from her mm-hmm. grandmother. And the one thing she got from her was a really uh, a hatred of bigotry in all its forms. And um, uh, my mother today uh, is, is very much, uh, uh, very much a, you know, she, she, uh, an opponent of bigotry in every form and bullying in all its form. And that's something that's really been passed along to our daughter Amy, who's who's been an advocate for that and, and there's a lot of a lot of connection between them, between the first generation survivor and the third generation survivor, her daughter Amy. So her grand my her granddaughter Amy. So that's part of what's in this book coming up in March. So. That's really exciting. That's that all sounds great. And you also have a play. Also isn't there a play? Yes, there was a play that my wife Candy wrote uh, based yeah. on the book, and it was it was uh, it was produced and um, and performed three times. Its premiere in Bloomington, Indiana, where I grew up, where Indiana University is. It was performed by the Jewish Community Theater there, um, and three times got a very good uh, got a very good notice in the in the paper there, and we hope it will be pre- performed elsewhere. It's kind of called a it's a, uh, it's a it is a play a choreographed stage reading they call it but it's a it's a, a virtually a full blown play and it went very well mom was there uh, for all all the performances and Candy did a beautiful job of adapting the book so hopefully that will be performed elsewhere uh, in the next uh, year or so very exciting I hope please keep me posted on everything because whenever I can you know talk about it on the show I'm happy to do so. And um, I would really love to meet you guys in person someday. I've really enjoyed this interview. And, you know, just getting to know you through the book and knowing you on the air now, what a great honor to be in your presence. We have, too. And i got to say, we I enjoyed the interview. One reason I enjoyed it so much, and I think Mom will agree, is you've done such a masterful job of, of conducting this interview because it's a huge story. And yeah. it's, it's hard to, to, to talk about it briefly and and you, you've really guided us through, I think, a wonderful discussion of the story. And 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 of course, best of all, you've you've been able to play some of the music as well. So my, I really I can't I, as someone who's been in this business a long time as a journalist, I really I, I know a great interviewing job when I see one, and I just want to thank you for that. Oh, you just made my life right now. So <laughs> believe me, we've had some that weren't we've had some that didn't go so well. <laughs> that, oh wow, boy, that's hard. It, it's it's hard for me to believe, you know, after speaking to both of you. That's just incredible. But I also wanted to say we share something in common, Greg. I know you're a big Yankee fan, and uh, I'm a big Yankee fan myself. Uh, my entire family is. So, um, I better would, luck next season. Yes, better luck next season. But uh, the other thing that, that really, just to kind of end on a light note, uh, yeah. is that what what amazed me so much, Shauna, and I mean your strength in keeping your story to yourself, and I understand your unselfish reasons, and all I kept thinking about is, oh, my God, my whole family, what a bunch of loose lips. This would have never <laughs> been able to, to be a secret in my family. So I really admire um, 
you know, just the person that you are. I mean, it's it's really you're really just amazing, and you've inspired me so much in so many so many different ways. I thank uh, you very here, much. Here. I yeah. always think that I haven't done enough. <laughs> I always if some other if some other people if some other people put it, you know, Kathy, she's a real pistol. So that's she is a real pistol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys again, um, Jana and and Greg. It's been an honor to have uh, have you both on the program, and thank you for sharing this important story with the world. Um, please go to www.hidinginthespotlight.com and purchase this book. It's a no brainer. It is a must read book. Um, By the way, can we can we go yeah. to the site and hear this interview ourselves? Now, yes. Is it on there for a while? Good. Yes, Good. I'm going. Yeah. To, it's in the archives, so it's mm-hmm. it's there forever and ever. And uh-huh. I'm going to send you a link, and then you can send it to your contacts. And oh, that'd be great. Uh, that'd and be great. you know, I I will pr- be promoting it on my end as well. Oh, and uh, I just can't thank you enough. I I wish you both a very happy and a healthy um, New Year. It was, it was our pleasure, Kathy. Once again, thank you for doing this uh, a terrific job, and especially under the difficult circumstances for you and your family. So our condolences once again on your on your loss. Thank you. And I'm with Greg. I'm with Greg. That I think it's remarkable how. You're working today uh, because you have expertise, and that's to be admired. And, and I had you as my guest, and you inspired me to be able to get through this today. You you need to know that. I wish you uh, better days than yesterday, you know. Thank you. And uh, wonderful uh, luck for this coming year. And, well, the health is still, that's what we need, huh? Yes, that's the most important thing, you know, health and love. Okay, guys, thank you again. Um, I just want to wish everybody a happy and healthy New Year. Thanks uh, for taking this journey with me. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you, guys. Happy New Year. And say hello to my old student. Oh, yes, we didn't even mention that. The reason (laughs) that this whole story came to me Uh is my, my husband, uh, Andrew Schwartz Barrett uh, went to Indiana University, and uh, Jana was his teacher. And uh, he's a pianist and a musician and a composer. And he was, you know, I don't know if you know this part of the story, Jana, but he all of a sudden you came into his thoughts after years and years. He said he always thought about you. He was always impressed with you. You were amazing. But you came very strongly in his thoughts, and he went online and Googled you, and the book came up. And that's how the story, you know, came to me. You know, nobody, none of our students, of course, at the time knew anything about this story. No, exactly. Nor did I. Nor did I for a long, long time. So, yeah, it's uh, it's come as a big surprise to a lot of people, (laughs) (laughs) including the Germans. Yes. So fascinating that... That yeah. we were connected long, long before we got to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that I, you know, I felt, wow, this is fate, and it's so wonderful, and and this really, this by far is. Um, Thank you so much, because uh, any time you want me, and even if Greg cannot make it because he's terribly busy, um, I'm uh, I'm ready for you. Okay, listen, I may make you my co-host. Do you want to be my co-host, Shana? Well, I mean, that would take a move from here to there. No, we can do it by phone. We can do it by phone. We can start another channel, and it will be to wipe out bigotry around the world. You know, I will tell you right away that if it will help to um, 
uh, acquaint the people of what happens to uh, when you are in Holocaust. Uh, I will do it. Okay. Well, yes. we'll have to talk after New Year's. We'll we'll start well, making plans. For some show, and I'm making him handy. You are. You would always come in handy. <laughs> always. I, you're so cute. I want to fly to Atlanta just to give you a hug and meet you. Both of you are welcome anytime. You know, okay, please. Kathy. Okay. And you're welcome here, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Sending you big hugs and lots of love. And uh, this is Kathy Barrett closing out the year 2011. I'm sending you a virtual hug from behind the curtain. I'll be back Thank next you. week, and I you hope you'll an join me. You have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not saying goodbye forever. We're no, not. no. The way we think, we should meet again. We we will meet again. Okay. Thanks a million. I'm going to hang up now. Okay, I'll... lots of love to you, Shauna, really, and a big hug. And I, I look forward to doing more projects with you. I think it'll be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to your to your dear ones and loved ones. And goodbye. Goodbye.